Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. With inflation nearly at 10% and an energy crisis going at full blast, the government seems unsure how to respond. Put the brakes on or spend your way out of trouble. Now, Boris Johnson's instinct is to spend public money like a drunken sailor on 24-hour shore leave. But his Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is a little more circumspect. Perhaps because he's been reading up on the early 1970s, and in particular the so-called barber boom of 1972, an ill-fated dash for growth that ended in disaster for the UK economy, curtains for the Prime Minister, Ted Heath, and a decade that became a byword for runaway inflation, just as the 1930s were for runaway unemployment. So we thought we'd go back and look at the barber boom. How much responsibility does it bear for what came afterwards? Barber himself, was he a fool, a knave or just plain unlucky? And what parallels are there, if any, in the situation we find ourselves in now? And I'm delighted that we're joined today by Duncan Weldon, author of a brilliant new book, Muddling Through, (laughs) which charts the course of the British economy from over the last two centuries. So he should be able to provide a bit of perspective, I think, Neil. Absolutely. And I think the title of the book is very apt to describe the British economy. Somebody once said the British economy is a bit like a bumblebee. When you look at it, you think it cannot possibly fly, but then it does. So uh, we muddle through. Anyway, welcome, Duncan. Thank you very much. I think we we should start by talking a little bit about the barber boom itself and how it came about. What was the logic behind this very odd kind of description, the dash for growth? I think that was what it was actually called at the time. That's very much what it was called at the time. So, you know, to put the barber boom in context, I think you need to start in 1970 with the election of Ted Heath's government. And, you know, Ted Heath's government is what we would nowadays call Thatcherite. He was really trying to do the same sort of deregulatory reforming agenda that Margaret Thatcher succeeded in. 10 years later. That's why people call themselves a Thatcherite now rather than a Heathite. <laughs> because she succeeded and he failed, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Heath's elected saying, I'm going to deregulate the economy. I'm going to introduce more competition. We're going to be less status than we've been. And, you know, this is going to be tough, but we're going to do it. And he's going to cut taxes as well. And he's going to cut taxes as well. But two years in, it is not going very well. The British economy has slowed. Unemployment has gone above a million for the first time since 1940. And that's sort of the context in which you get the great Heath government U-turn, in which they both back away from lots of this reforming agenda and instead really hit the accelerator in terms of fiscal policy. So, you know, the barber boom, 1972-1973, the government is explicitly aiming to grow the economy by 10% in two years. This is the dash. This is a huge expansion they're going for. (laughs) And partially that's done by huge tax cuts. So the 1972 budget, you've got tax cuts worth something like 3% of GDP. You know, big increases in income tax allowances, big increases in investment allowances for firms. The next year, they cut VAT, which has just been introduced very recently, from 10% to 8%. This is really you know, hitting every accelerator they've got from a macro point of view, trying to push the economy forward. And what was the logic of the dash? I always think growth is saying you want to kind of gently press on the accelerator rather than floor it. 
Largely because you do, yes. all you generally do is burn your tyres out and then have a crash. Well, the hope was you were going to get this sort of two years of really, really strong growth. And this was going to kickstart and unlock stronger growth in the long term. You know, a lot of it was thinking we're cutting taxes, we're putting up investment allowances. There's going to be a huge capital investment boom from British industry. Once you've done the dash for growth, you will then be moving at a faster pace because of all of this capital investment was the theory. Yeah, the fact that, of course, that the UK economy had never managed to grow 10% over two years in recorded history was uh, just a sort of minor irritant at the side. Not enough ambition, I think, in the past. <laughs> 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 OK, so they do all this. And as you say, in the middle of it, Ted Heath has a bit of a wobble. But the wobble doesn't interrupt the dash for growth. The, the dash for growth continues. It's just he stops trying to deregulate and impose rules on the unions. Is that right? Yes. So you sort of back away from that sort of structural reform of the labour market and you press down harder mm. on sort of your macro policy levers to try and you know, force the economy to grow faster. Right. But, you know, the context is if you look at the early 1970s in Britain, you've got the oil price shock, which we know about, you know, in sort of October 1973 to the Yom Kippur War and the oil embargo. You've got a labour market, which looks very different to our current labour market, much stronger unions pushing for higher wages. You've got the floating of the pound, sort of the breakdown of Bretton Woods. So suddenly you've got this free floating pound and you've got this really sort of, you know, aggressive fiscal policy acceleration. And just as important, you've got a newly deregulated and liberalized bank lending market, particularly in mortgages, helping inflate house prices. So if you sort of step back and you look at it, you think, you know, what could go wrong on inflation? Well, everything that could go wrong went wrong at the same time. Can you just very quickly explain to us the impact of Bretton Woods, which you mentioned, which was a kind of fixed currency system that had operated since the Second World War. It was basically scrapped because it all depended on the Americans and they pulled out in 1971. But what was the impact of that? Yeah, so from the late 40s until the early 70s, you know, the value of the pound had been fixed against the dollar and it was adjustable. You know, it was devalued in the late 40s. It was devalued again in the late 60s. But generally it was at a fixed value. And that caused all sorts of problems for the British economy in terms of managing that fixed exchange rate. But abandoning Bretton Woods, letting the pound freely float for the first time in decades in the early 70s, brought a whole host of new problems. So the pound is allowed to float against other currencies at a time when the British economy is not looking like a great bet for international investors. So what you get is severe depreciation in the value of the pound, which obviously pushes up the cost of imports, adding more to inflation. If you were trying to pick the best moment to float the pound, it wouldn't be in the early 1970s. I think you can probably say it was a uniquely bad moment to float the pound and impose the reforms. The other one, of course, was what was called competition and credit control, the replacement for the old bank rate. And in the end, it produced neither competition nor credit control. It was, what was it, though? It was, a, it was a, a different method of trying to control the money markets, whereas in the past it had been essentially done through bank rate and the position of the governor being able to bully the banks into doing what they were told. Competition and credit control was going to scrap all this, and, of course, it would be a brave new market-led world 
I think I'm right to say it was a disaster from start to finish. It was eventually scrapped. Yeah, so you get a huge, a huge bank lending boom in the early 70s. So you've got your tax cuts, increased government spending, and huge amounts of sort of liquidity coming out of the banking system. Again, it's everything that can go wrong on inflation went wrong. Okay, so let's go back for a second to Mr. Barber himself, Tony Barber. He wasn't supposed to be Chancellor in 1970. It was supposed to be Ian McLeod. But he then rather unfortunately died almost immediately after the election. What's the judgment on him? Was he just not up to it? Was he an idiot? Did he completely fail to kind of get a grip? He seems to be pretty poorly written up by history. Is that fair? He is pretty poorly written up by history because, you know, he's, he's most famous for making, you know, one of the worst macroeconomic policy judgments of any British policymaker in the 20th century. That's not a great, you know, epitaph to have. Um, <laughs> now, I do think you've got to, to be fair to him yeah. at the time. You know, a wider problem was how policymakers in Britain and elsewhere sort of viewed economic policy. This is still an era of what you might think of as hydraulic Keynesianism. Also, oh, that's a new yeah, one. Yeah, the business cycle has been conquered. Okay. End to boom and bust would be another End way. End to boom and bust. We've oh, conquered. Why it. do we hear that? Yes, a few years <laughs> we've later, con- <laughs> we've conquered like the central problem of the business cycle. There aren't going to be. There isn't going to be another depression. And actually, we think we understand how the economy works, and we call it hydraulic because we think we can pull and push certain levers, right. and the economy will react in a right. you know a sort of a precise way. Yes. And in particular, this is the world of what economists call the Phillips curve, this relationship between unemployment and inflation. And we think that as unemployment falls, inflation goes up. And as unemployment rises, inflation comes down. This seems like a stable relationship. So, you know, from Barber's point of view, he's sitting in the treasury. His economic advisors are telling him, look, we understand if you pull these levers, the economy will grow. You don't need to worry so much about inflation because of where unemployment has been. You've got room, to, you know, unemployment's past a million. You've got room to bring down unemployment without provoking more inflation. Mm. There's sort of this illusion that they've got much more control than I they see. do. So it's a bit like, you know, they're sitting in the control room and the lights are flickering in what seems to be a suitable way, and they don't realise actually that the whole system has gone to hell in a handcart. Not connected, <laughs> not connected exactly. to the it's engine room. Three yes. Mile Island. How, um, how much do you think it was because of the relationship between Heath and Barber? Barber always struck me, and I was there at the time, as a weak character, and Heath was a really stubborn bugger. I don't think there's an instance where the relationship between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor has worked, except where it's been essentially a pair of equals rather than a subsidiary. How much do you think that's fair comment? I think that is fair. I think, you know, Heath certainly was on board with the dash. Heath, you know, from Heath's point of view, unemployment going above a million is a disaster. He's aware he's facing re-election within a couple of years if the dash for growth had worked, if we'd got 10% growth in two years, that would have obviously set him up very nicely for his re-election in 1974. <laughs> he could have been world king, actually, if he'd managed oh, to we'll do come that. come on to that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, you know, but I think, yeah, it's a you know, strong prime minister, relatively weak chancellor. More of the policy decisions are being made in number 10 than number 11 Downing oh, Street. Okay. So that may be a moment to flip it forward to the present day where we have 
I don't know, midterm prime minister, not so much in the middle of a U-turn as sort of just sort of going round in circles, occasionally crashing into pyramids of baked beans. Well, but, it's, 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 really, but, it, it's really impossible to discern it's, it's anything. U-turn. It's really impossible to discern anything which you could describe as an economic policy uh, under Johnson. But critically, we have a relationship between a prime minister who, for all his sort of weird waywardness, has quite a strong grip on his cabinet. And a chancellor who, lest it be forgotten, not only was unexpected like Barber to get the job, because it was supposed to be Sajid Javid originally, but accepted essentially subordination to number 10 in order to get the job in place of his predecessor. Yeah, I think so that's very, are we, very are we true. looking at a similar kind of dynamic between number 10 and number 11 today that we had in the early 70s? I think it's a dynamic which has changed a lot. I think completely. When Sunak got the job, you know, he was very much you know, subservient. We're putting someone that number 10 can control into the Treasury. But, you know, by the start of this year, mm-hmm. you know, after the pandemic, when we'd had the furlough scheme, you know, Rishi Sunak was the most popular politician in Britain. Boris Johnson was struggling at the start of the year. And it looked like actually the Chancellor had sort of emerged as a much stronger figure. Mm. I think we saw that at the um, spring statement in March, where presumably the Prime Minister would have liked much more support for households straight away. But the Chancellor was able to sort of stand his ground and say, I don't want to do that. Well, I would challenge some of that. Uh, Sunak was very popular as long as he was writing the checks. And that's something that anybody can do. It's when you had to uh, to stop doing that and start talking about tax increases that he suddenly looked a lot less convincing. I was never impressed with what he did and certainly what he said because the two did not agree. I feared that when it came to actual policy rather than what he was claiming to do, he was essentially taking dictation. It's interesting, isn't it? If you look at, you know, it was one of the weirdest budget speeches I can remember at the spring statement that, you know, what we know... We know that the tax increases at the spring statement and at the budget before are the most substantial tax increases since the early 1990s. We know that they will take the tax share of GDP to the highest it's been in decades. So we know it was objectively a tax rising budget, yet much of it was cloaked in the language of I'm an instinctive tax cutter. I want to cut taxes in the future. You can't put up taxes to the most in four decades whilst calling yourself a tax cutter. It is a demonstration, isn't it, of listen to what the government says and bet on the opposite happening. But also but also, <laughs> it's an illustration of a man who is not really in control of his own policy. This is like a man holding up a newspaper to show he's still alive. You know, I... <laughs> <laughs> And saying, they're making me say this. It's not me. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. But, but let's, let's not get too stuck in the personalities. Fascinating they are. I mean, mm. if you look at where we are now compared to where we were in the early 70s, the Baba boom period, are there any parallels, really? Or are we really living completely in a different world now? Well, you've got the high inflation, you know, inflation, the highest in 40 years at the moment, high since March 82, expected to go higher. You've got a big energy price shock, an energy price shock, which is actually sort of comparable in scale and speed, although the economy is thankfully less energy intensive than it was in the early 70s. You know, manufacturing is a much smaller part of the British economy than it was. So you've got a bit of insulation there. I think the really big difference is, 
you know, in the early 1970s, you've got a lot of imported inflation and a lot of domestically generated inflation. The picture is slightly different at the moment that still 80, 85% of the inflation we're experiencing at the moment is imported. It's the food price shock, the energy price shock, supply chain disruptions coming out of the pandemic. There is some domestic cost pressure, but most of it is still imported. And I mean, the big difference, you could look at the latest unemployment figures and say unemployment is under 4%. It's the lowest it's been since the 1970s. But the structure of the labor market, the structure of the jobs market is radically different to in the 1970s. You know, one in five British people today are a member of a trade union compared to more than half in the 70s. The wage bargaining process operates very, very differently. So, you know, I mean, at the moment, you know, real wages are falling, you know, price rises are moving faster than wages. There isn't much evidence of that sort of workers trying to bid up their wages to protect themselves, forcing up prices, getting into that sort of vicious circle yet. That's the big difference for me. I would add another parallel, which is the money supply. Under Ah. Barber, the money supply essentially ran away. It was only measured by the sort of nerds in the city who kept saying, this is asking for trouble. And we've had something very similar in the last couple of years. And the monetarists, in fact, have been warning that this inflation was coming for at least two years now, the likes of Tim Congdon, who is a sort of dyed-in-the-wool monetarist, who did predict all this long before Ukraine and the uh, and the knock-on effects from Russian embargoes and all that sort of thing. So I think that that is an extremely uncomfortable parallel. What happens now on the monetary side is going to make a big difference to... Uh, how bad the recession is next year. And I think that the the Treasury don't really seem to have the expertise to deal with this. And certainly, I don't think the bank does. They hardly mention it nowadays. Yeah, I mean, you did, you did get a big increase in the money supply in 2020, 2021. I mean, it's peaked and it's come down. But if you work on that sort of model, that there's an 18 to 24-month lag, then yes, inflation is high this year, maybe into the start of next before starting to come down. What's interesting to me is... We did get very fast money supply growth. We also got very fast money supply growth in 2009-10, again, when you got big QE programs for the first time. This one seems to be having more of an inflationary impact than the last one. Maybe the difference is that government spending was a lot higher. Government's deficit was a lot higher. Mm. You know, this bout of QE that we just had seems to have financed more government spending, whereas the last one ended up just stuck in reserves rather than making its way out into the economy. Yeah, we had Paul Tucker on our podcast a few weeks ago, and and he very much made that point, that it was a mistake that the government had not reversed some of that QE more quickly, or the Bank of England had not reversed that QE more quickly. Well, um, far from reversing it, they actually increased it in 2020. I mean, that was a real serious policy error. Mm. So thinking again about... Barber and his boom, and also what the lessons are for the present day. If you were in Rishi Sunak's shoes, what would you do now? And would you do anything that Tony Barber did? Or would you <laughs> reject everything that he suggested? <laughs> I mean, I think you know, the lesson from Barber's time, which I'd be telling the Chancellor, would be you know less about what your policy tools and levers do 
than you think you do. You know, be, be cautious, be skeptical. Don't think that by doing X, that will cause Y. You know, relationships between different variables change over time. Be cautious. I would at least reassure the Chancellor that things don't look quite as bad as they did on the inflation front in the early 70s. And I think the advice I'd be giving to him (laughs) now is to think, you know, I mean, when Andrew Bailey, the governor of the bank, was doing his last press conference, you know, the analogy that his communications people had clearly told him to use, because he used it five or six times in the press conference, was that I'm walking a narrow path you know, on the one <laughs> side between very high inflation and on the other side between an economy that looks like it might be slowing quite sharply. It's a tragedy, isn't it? But it's not up to him to walk this narrow path. It's up to him <laughs> to get the bloody rate of inflation down to the 2% target. <laughs> I mean, this is the problem for the Chancellor, isn't it? You know, the Chancellor yeah, is quite. on that narrow path. And the Chancellor should be able to think, OK, inflation is the bank's problem let the bank do what it needs to do. I have to worry about how the economy gets through what's going to be the toughest year for British households since the 1950s. If you look at the you know the forecasts for real income, yeah. I think what the Chancellor should be doing yeah. is prioritising supporting people hit by this sort of imported energy price mm. shock. That's mm. really the best he can do now and hope that's enough to prevent the economy slipping too much. I mean, you shouldn't be going for a dash for growth. If, you know, that's, that wouldn't be my, my advice oh, at the moment. A dash for disaster, I would think, dash, probably. Dash off a cliff. And, and we should uh, remember what happened for the next election after after the barber boom. Yeah, should he should he have a windfall tax? Yeah, I mean, I think he will. And I think he, um, I think he almost certainly should at this point. I think, you know, the, some, of the, some of the chief executives have made it very hard for him not to by talking up quite how high their profits are going to be this year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, of course, they're um, throwing huge sums at green projects, which presumably will produce a terrible return. And it'd be far better if they were taxed now and they could uh, allocate their capital in a more rational way, which is uh, far better than paying Dane Geld to the Dane which is what they're threatening, what they're currently doing, saying we're going to spend 20 billion here and 20 billion there and, you know, look how good we are. They should get on with the business that they know what they're doing rather than uh, trying to pay that sort of bribe to the administration. They take their lumps with the, uh, with the windfall tax. Is there anything you think that's potentially out there, a great big rock in the water, a bit like uh, some of the things you described in the early 70s, which could change the world as we know it, obviously you can't know exactly how we'll do it. <laughs> short of nuclear war, of I mean, course. <laughs> they're, they're, well, they are obviously short of nuclear war. I think then, to a certain extent, the question of dashes for growth and so forth is no longer such a big issue anymore. The lesson, I think, when you go back and you read the sort of the diaries and the papers from the time, mm. is just how unimaginable everything that happened was yeah. until it happened. Yeah. You know, the idea we were going to get the kind of inflation rates we did in the 70s, if you'd written that six months before, everyone would have regarded you as mad. And, you know, if you look at the situation we're in now with inflation at 9%, highest since 1982, you know, you've only got to go back six or seven months and the Bank of England and most economists and the consensus forecasts were for inflation at about four and a half or five percent. The inflation rate is twice as high as we expected it to be six months ago, and now we've all just sort of accepted that. You know, I mean, it, it's quite worrying how quickly things can change. Just goes to show, forecasting is always difficult, especially for the future. There we are <laughs> on that wise note. <laughs> <laughs> That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. 
Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week. Thank you.